Do you ever feel like you've combed through every car shopping website, but you still haven't found the car you really want? And sometimes you don't even know if what you're seeing is actually a good deal. Well, that's where CarGurus comes in handy. CarGurus rates car deals using an impartial, unbiased algorithm that analyzes thousands of details like mileage, accident history, even dealer reputation. Only 30% of cars earn CarGurus' highest deal ratings. So when you see a great deal, you can trust that it is a great deal. CarGurus has more cars than any other leading site, and they show you all the details that matter, like days on lot, price drops, and more. Visit CarGurus.com when you're ready to shop for a car. That's CarGurus, C-A-R-G-U-R-U-S.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So negotiation. If you're like most people who grew up in the West, particularly America, negotiation might make you uncomfortable because it's really not part of the culture. You know, the price someone asks is usually the price we pay. But negotiation is something all of us will have to do at one time or another. A job salary, a car price are two obvious examples that come to mind. The problem is the way most folks go about haggling when they do have to negotiate is that they often do it in a very counterproductive way. For example, it's typically typically assumed the best way to negotiate is to quickly get to yes and make compromises. But what if the better approach is to make no your goal and never split the difference? Well, that's what my guest on the show today argues, and his insights have been field tested in, in truly critical situations. His name is Chris Voss, and he's a former lead international kidnapping negotiator and the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And today on the show, Chris shares tactics and strategies he developed to better negotiate with kidnappers that can work in the civilian world. And many of his tips were encountered what you've probably been taught. So if you're looking to become a better haggler, you're going to love this episode. It's packed with tons of actionable advice. Make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is negotiate. Uh, for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Chris Voss, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. My pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be here. All right. So you're a negotiation expert. Uh, right now, you own your own company that consults business businesses or business clients on how to negotiate. Before that, you were the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI so first question, like how did you get involved with high-stakes hostage negotiation in your career? Well, you know, I'm happy to get into that, but I want to add a little qualifier on the, what I am. Um, and what I really think of myself as um, is a person who's great at negotiation coaching and consulting. And I was just thinking earlier, I, I, I will flatter myself to compare myself to Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson... I don't think he even started for the New York Knicks as a player, but he's probably arguably the best coach ever. And he coached people. So there can be, you could be a much better negotiator than me and I can still help you get better at negotiations. So how I got started at this was, uh, you know, I was your typical, I'm allowed to say I was a knuckle dragon SWAT guy. (laughs) I was on a I was on a SWAT team in the FBI, and I had always wanted to be in SWAT. Uh, and I had studied some martial arts in college and ripped up my knee. The knee injury was actually a blessing in disguise. How could that be? That, that uh, something that bad is good. 
But uh, I was trying out for the FBI's equivalent of the SEALs, which is the hostage rescue team, and I hurt the, my knee again. And I got it put back together again, and then I decided I needed to maybe take uh, uh, a job in crisis response that ultimately wouldn't have repetitive injuries to it, you know, why they could still put my knee back together. So I wanted to be a hostage negotiator. And I went to uh, the woman who was in charge of the hostage negotiation team in New York, and she told me to go away. <laughs> um, and so I asked her advice on how to get in and followed it, much to her shock, and ended up getting in and started as a hostage negotiator with the FBI. Right. I thought that was interesting. What she told you to do was go uh, sign up, volunteer for suicide hotlines. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and to me, it seems obvious. You know, they, you ask the right person what to do and then actually do it. But when I talked to her and told her I was going to put that story in the book, she said, you know, I must have told a thousand people to do that. And two people did. And you were one of them. And it was great. I mean, I learned about how to really listen and read between the lines with people and not just read between the lines because a lot of people are, I think a lot of people are good that are good, actually good at that. You know, when you gut instinct, when somebody does something and you, you say to yourself, you know, darn it, I knew they were going to do that. I mean, I think that's us telling ourselves that, you know, our, our instincts are good. We can't read between the lines. And on the hotline, I just learned how to read between the lines and then what to say to make a difference in what people are going to do. Gotcha. And, and during your time on um, the hostage negotiation team for the FBI, what sorts of cases did you work on? Well, um, we kept a lot of cases out of the media because we were successful. But I worked on, you know, my, my first real deal case for the Bureau was a bank robbery with hostages in Brooklyn. And even though that uh, bank robberies with hostages happen in the movies and like every other movie, every other action film, in real life, they happen in the whole country about once every 20 years. So it's a, it's a black swan event, if you will. And so uh, that, that went well. Negotiated one of the bad guys out. He surrendered to me personally. And then we got everybody out. We got all the hostages out. And so I worked, uh, and I worked a couple of really small things in New York that were great experience. I was, there was a teacher that was accused of an inappropriate relationship with a student and he barricaded himself because he didn't do anything wrong. But the mere fact that it was a 13 year old girl, he was horrified that his, his life and his career was over. And, uh, we taught, we helped, uh, Dobbs Ferry police department, talk, uh, Dobbs Ferry, New York, talk him out, saved his life. And so then worked a couple of major, major sieges, worked the D.C. sniper case in Washington, D.C. And uh, there was another case in D.C. A guy referred to as Tractor Man who shut down the nation's capital just before the beginning of the second Iraq war, which is kind of like um, it was a hallmark. If we did a good job, you didn't know about it. Like very few people knew why we were getting ready to go with, to war with Iraq. That this guy who claimed to have four bombs shut down the center of Washington, D.C. But we kept him from getting killed, too. We talked him out. And then I worked a bunch of kidnappings around the world, which are really just commodities deals, as, as horrifying as that sounds. I, I worked uh, a lot of kidnappings. Okay. Yeah, I, didn't, I had no idea about the tractor guy. Like That was in 2013, and I don't even remember that happening. Well, uh, I'm talking about um, actually 2000. It was 2003. Okay, 2003. Excuse me. Right. 
Yeah, and, and uh, I was talking to my son about this the other day because you know he still lives in the D.C. area, and he knows tons of people in D.C. that grew up and lived in D.C. through the whole time that have no memory of it because we, we kept it contained. We kept it under control under news. And uh, and we talked them out. Nobody died, you know. The, the media, if it if it if it bleeds, it leads, and that's why the vast majority of the stuff that were my successes uh, didn't get a lot of publicity because nobody died. That's good. Well, that's a success. Um, so you got a new book out where you take the, your years of experience as a high stakes negotiator, working on teams where you're dealing with these high stakes negotiations, um, and you show civilians how they can apply these these tactics or these skills uh, in their regular life, whether in business or their personal life. It's called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of some of these tactics and skills, I want to talk about, because I thought it was interesting, you discussed sort of the evolution of negotiation at the FBI um, and how it changed during your tenure there. Let's talk about like what were the standard protocols that case agents had followed um, before you got there, and how did those change um, as you were involved there, and uh, and just things evolved at the FBI? Well, yeah, all we really did really was just stall for time, and then try to patiently outpower the other side. And you know, there's there's some success to that because patiently out powering or having a stronger will and in a patient fashion at least keeps you from open conflict which is never productive and even if you get what you want in open conflict it's like nuclear war it leaves toxic waste behind and even very successful negotiators and you know i, I use donald trump as an example mr trump he has such a tendency in, in all the uh, the negotiation wars that he's won that after a while people in the environment, there's enough, enough toxic waste. I can't remember the last time he put up a building in New York city. He put up some of the most phenomenal buildings you've ever seen in your entire life in New York city, but it's been 30 years since he's done that. And so at least getting out of that open conflict, because it, it just leaves, it leaves toxic waste. You know, when, when you beat the other side, you know, they never forget it. And so they don't want to cooperate in the, in the future. And, and that was kind of what we were doing in, in the FBI. We'd gotten out of open conflict and negotiation, but very definitely trying to just bull our way through with a relentless approach. And, and by and large, it, you know, it wasn't horrible. Um, it, the success rate was higher, but we had a, uh, you know, I had a kidnapping go bad in the Philippines. Um, the kidnappers didn't kill the, uh, our, our hostages. Our hostages ended up dying uh, in a botched rescue attempt and shot by friendly fire. But the bottom line is they still didn't get out. And, you know, that was, for me, that was the most difficult professional moment of my life. I'm, I, I have a very distinct memory at 5.30 in the morning getting a call from the Philippines being told that Martin Burnham was dead. And it was, for me, it was, it was horrible, and I think it's selfish of me to say that it was horrible because it wasn't my family member that died. As bad as it was for any of us in the FBI who, who tried very hard to save Martin Burnham's life, you know, it wasn't our family member that died. It was nothing compared to what the Burnham family went through. 
But then, you know, we had to get better. We did everything we could at that time. We had to get better. Had to, had to, had to get better. It's either get better or quit. I wasn't going to quit. So uh, that's when I went back to uh, started looking outside of hostage negotiation and collaborated with the Harvard people and and saw Jim Camp's book, Start With No, uh, which was the seed of a lot of our ideas. I think we very, he had, there's brilliance in that book and I think we evolved his thinking. And we we came to a new approach that was much more, it was actually a lot trickier, <laughs> less sneakier, you know, uh, but it was more effective. We, instead of trying to bull our way through, we came up with some great psychological nuances. You know, you and I were talking earlier, the effectiveness of the how question, how am I supposed to do that? Which I actually heard a version of that from a drug dealer in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> you got to, you got to go where, where you know, wherever, whatever works. You got you to take it. Yeah, yeah. So one, one of my negotiated negotiation mentors is a someone I never met, a drug dealer in Pittsburgh whose girlfriend was kidnapped. You know, and the famous line that he said was, "Hey, dog, how do I even know she's all right?" And that flipped the entire dynamic of that kidnapping and. I was looking for the answer at, at that time, and I realized it was right in front of us and stuff we already knew about. It was something we knew about, but we just changed how to apply it. And, you know, the, a new approach to a lot of different ideas that, you know, nobody ever thought to themselves, how do I, you know, can I, can I put up a boundary in a negotiation and stop the other side in their tracks just by asking them how? Because it stops people dead in their tracks. Right. Yeah, I thought it was interesting with that before the, uh, you know, instead of asking how, you know, how, how do I know if the person's still alive? Like you got FBI would be like, ask these questions like, what's her grandma's maiden name? Or what's the name of her first pet? Like sort of like the bank security questions. And that's how you'd figure out if the person right. was okay. Yeah, yeah. And we did that in, in the kidnapping, in all the previous kidnappings. And the one that went bad, the one that really bothered me about that was, you know, that wouldn't get us anywhere. It would prove somebody was alive and wouldn't get us anywhere. And in the midst of that case in the Philippines, then it comes to my attention that, uh, you know, the hostages have been overheard on the phone, but not our phone. And I remember kind of freaking out over that. I'm like, what in the world? And why is this going on? And how does this happen? I mean, and I talked to my boss at the time. Gary Nestor, great guy. And he said, well, you know, a hostage is never on a phone unless it's for proof of life. And we never got anybody on the phone. I mean, we didn't even bother asking because we knew if we asked, the bad guys would say no. So don't ask because they're going to say no, which is another assumption that I now realize is wrong and a fallacy of the approach. And there's, you know, asking for non-starters can be a very smart thing to do which most people are horrified at doing. And we were horrified at asking for a non-starter. But then when, when I found out somebody else who was not this enormously sophisticated, smart FBI hostage negotiator, the way I was, was doing stuff that I couldn't do. I mean, that blew me away. And that, that's why when I heard the, the drug dealer in Pittsburgh do it, I knew that was the answer. Right. Just ask, ask straight up how, how. Okay, we'll get more to the detail about how and other calibrated questions. But let's start off with this because I think uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with negotiation, uh, whether it's in business or, you know, even life just in negotiation where you're talking to your kids. Um, and I think part of the problem is that people have 
assumptions about negotiation or when they go into a negotiation, what are some of these assumptions that people have that make negotiations go sour or south or, or just not work or break down? Well, first of all, everybody imagines they're going to face Donald Trump. Like when you expect to get into a negotiation, you're expect to be faced by a guy who's going to attack you, a guy, a gal is going to attack or that, you know, that they're going to try to get the best of you. And so that two thirds of us, that makes us very defensive. There's, there's a, uh, there's a portion of the population actually likes that. And it'd be like, and they'll say, yeah, when I negotiate, it's like getting in the ring with the best and I'm going to go toe to toe. And you can see that when they even talk about that, they kind of move their arms like they're getting ready to box and they get very excited. But the first assumption is that's always going to be the case. And that the other person on the other side of the table is always going to cut our, cut our throat when in fact they're a minority of the time. 75% of the people we come across are actually trying to work with us to make good deals. But we don't, we treat everybody as if they're the throat cutter, that they're going to kill us. And so that's the first problem. The next, the second problem is that we become a hostage of yes. I mean, we're so desperate to hear yes. And yes has been cited as one of the most beautiful words in the English language, if not any language, that if we don't hear yes, we're horrified. We're desperate for it. And then that becomes, and anything that sounds like yes, we want to go, they said yes. And we have a deal, and then we want to run away before we figure out how. And I, I, I really try to reaffirm to people over and over again, yes is nothing without how. The real key to the negotiation, what's the key here? Yes is nothing without how. If you haven't got how, you haven't got a deal. But many people stop at yes because they're in love with yes. They're seduced by it. And they become the hostage of it. And then they, then they don't cut a deal. And I had, uh, I was doing a talk one time, CEO brings in his, uh, his chief corporate counsel and they say, I want you to teach my chief corporate counsel how to negotiate penalty clauses into deals. And my thought was, you are in love with yes. And you get a deal and you think you got to deal with yes. And then it always goes sideways. So now you want to know how to punish people because you can't negotiate a good deal. And, they, and that's all a result of becoming a hostage of yes. And I think those are the biggest things. Yeah. Well, yeah, going, let's you know, continue off this, this hostage of yes thing. I mean, you argue in the book that oftentimes when people do get a yes, it's a deceptive yes. Um, right. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that counterparts in a negotiation process use yes as sort of a throw off or sort of a, a, yeah, a deceptive yes? Yeah. Um, well, there's three kinds of yeses. There's commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. And so many people try this, and there's actually an academic term for it. It's called mirror agreement. And if you get somebody to say yes several times to the little yeses, they'll say yes to the big yes. And it's such nonsense. But everybody does it. They try to trap us with yes. And so since we're used to that, you know, the shrewd business person, the shrewd negotiator, wants to suck all the intelligence possible out of you. They'll bring you in under the illusion that you're going to get the business so that you can pitch all this competitive information or market information, which they'll take from you and they'll use it to drive down a price with somebody else they want to actually do business with. 
So they make it sound like they're interested. They'll make it sound like, yeah, you know, we'd love to hear what you have to say. And they'll and they and they know that they committed to listen to you. And since you're in love with yes, you think they committed to making a deal. And so you will put yourself in a position where you're highly vulnerable to them because you thought they were dealing with you in good faith. And they'll lead you down this path. And they get very good at it. And then at the end, they'll either just flat out say, well, things have changed. They come up. These people are great with the excuses of, well, things have changed and I can no longer do this and it's not my fault, but it's beyond my control. But they've sucked, they've sucked up your time, which is the most valuable commodity, by giving the illusion of yes, the, the counterfeit yes. And I think this happens to a lot of people. Or the, the, the other way they'll, take, they'll, they'll get you is they'll make you the hostage of the future. And that happens a lot, being taken hostage by the future of the business community. If you come do this for us at the cut rate, you will be exposed to all this potential business. And if you do a good job, you'll get all this business. And so you come and do something for them for free. And then if you didn't get the follow-on business, which never happens anyway, then it was your fault. But then you did work for them for free. And that's the hostage of the future or the, the vision of yes in the future. And people get, people kill themselves and kill their resources uh, uh, under this illusion of yes. Yeah. And you, you argue instead of aiming for yes, um, I mean, first off, you should, instead of going for yes, you should go for that's right. And what do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, well, you know, and the distinguishing that's right from your right is the first critical step in that, understanding that when someone looks us in the eye and says, you're right, this is in fact what we do with people we're trying to preserve the relationship with. We really like them, but we want them to get off our case. We want them to shut up and maybe we want them to shut up, smile and go away. And, you know, there's one particular type of person around the world that is the leading practitioner of using yet your right in order to get the other side to, to, to leave them alone and go away. You, and you know what the world's preeminent practitioner of your right is? I'm going to guess kids. Husbands. Husbands. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, dear. You're right, dear. You're right. You know, because we say you're right to somebody and they get this really happy look on their face and they, and they, and they leave us alone. They stop. They change the subject or they go away. And they're so happy they forget it takes about 24 hours to catch on that we're not going along. And I think this is actually, this is the great, um, uh, this is this thing that sucks up more time and energy within businesses these days. Our colleagues saying you're right to each other and not getting anywhere. And we found that just the subtle change, getting someone to say that's right to us, there's this, there's, there's a different change. There's something else that happens here. Cause when somebody says that's right, you know, they put out something as the complete truth. What they just heard is the truth. And that's when they can embrace it. When someone is saying you're right, they say, okay, your solution. What they're really saying is I can't argue with you right now, but it's not my solution. It's not the truth. It's your truth. And so I can, I'm figuratively putting the hand up in your face. And I'm not accepting it. But when they say that's right, bang, I mean, crazy things happen. Uh, triggers an epiphany in the person that says it. They feel bonded to us at the moment. Excuse me. 
they feel bonded to us in that moment. And every single time, and and this is across culture. This is this has happened in. Uh, I've seen it in Asia. I've seen it in Africa. A Korean in a Korean company was negotiating with his boss and got a that's right out of him. And his boss admitted some deeply personal things to him right after he said that's right. And this guy was a student in one of my classes and he said, thank God we're on the phone because my mouth was open. No one in my culture, never ever does a superior admit those sort of personal things to a subordinate. And when he admitted all these personal things after saying that's right, he then turned around and supported him for his promotion. So there's something that makes people step towards us when we, and you have to say it in a way that almost sounds like you're trying to talk them into their position. You know, you feel this way because, and, and it's, if you said almost counter to your interests, how they feel about it, that's when the big steps take place. Using Talkspace feels a little like having a therapist in your pocket. Being able to reach out to your therapist or psychiatrist anytime from anywhere makes taking care of your mental health easy. You'll be more relaxed when traveling, knowing that if you need to talk to your therapist, you can You can just send a message from wherever you are. Working through things in therapy can be tough, but using Talkspace to connect with your therapist isn't. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and start therapy the same day you sign up. Text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Plus, it's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy, and it's secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code MANLINESS to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's manliness in Talkspace.com. Right, so, so to get to that's right, you have to do this, you know, what you call active listening or tactical empathy, right? Yeah, it's a very tactical. I mean, we've taken active listening. You know, this is not, this is not your grandfather's active listening. You know, this is not uh, the 70s uh, feel good, give everybody a hug stuff. This is actually a very mercenary approach because in the hostage negotiation, I... You know, I learned enough about the specific emotions to look for and how to take a tactical approach to empathy to reinforce what works for you and to diminish what doesn't work for you. And you want to you want to nurture the positives in the relationship that positively move you towards an agreement. And you want to diminish and diffuse and, and uh, preempt the negatives in a, in a, in a very counterintuitive way. And you do it by observing it, which sounds like, what good is that going to do? That sounds stupid. But there's actually um, brain science uh, data and experiments now that show that when you observe a negative, the part of the brain that magnifies negative thoughts, the electrical activity in that part of the brain diminishes. And it's the difference between, you know, uh, a person saying, uh, I know I seem like a jerk. I know it seems like I've been unfair for you, or I know it seems like this proposition is very self-centered, as opposed to, I don't want you to think I've been a jerk. I don't want you to think I've been self-centered. I don't want you to think this proposition is unfair to you, because those are denials, and denials magnify negatives. But just flat out observing it, which is a very tactical approach, has it 
makes them diminish every single time. And we, we, this is so effective in deals. Like if, if you and I are in a negotiation, I've got some, I'm going to pitch you on something that I know you're not going to like. The first thing I'm going to say to you is I've got a lousy proposition for you and I'm going to shut up and I'm going to wait for you to respond. And every time I've used that, the other person has hesitated and said, well, a lousy proposition is better than no proposition. What have you got? And when somebody says that to you, they're completely open to hearing what you have to say. And they've already said they're willing to consider it. Right. So you're, you're sort of, you're doing some anchoring there a bit, kind of low, lowering their expectations in a way. You know, that's a really good point. You know, it, 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 it's, you know, it's exactly it. You're throwing an anchor of low expectations out there. And since in a vague sort of way, I've allowed them to create those low expectations what we do to ourselves is always worse than what happens in real life. So the expectations that they've created are always lower than what I'm going to throw out. So they're actually relieved when I come back with something that's not as bad as they brace themselves for. And so I've used a person's inner um, voice that makes things worse than they really are to my advantage. I've never had anybody say, that was worse than I expected. Every single time they take their expectations, they anchor themselves much lower than anything I've ever come at them with. So let's, let's get into some specific tactics of active listening um, so you can use tactical empathy. And I guess, yeah, you, you're kind of defining tactical empathy. You said uh, this is not your grandpa's empathy. I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of empathy that you feel the same way as the person. If they're sad, you feel sad. If you're dealing with a drug dealer, like you feel like their sense of injustice, but like, it's not that it's, you just understand it. Like you are inside their head. You can see where they're coming from. Um, right. So how, what are some tactics? One of the tactics you mentioned is mirroring. Uh, what is mirroring mirroring and how do you do that? Yeah. What is mirroring? Mirroring is different than what most people think. Most people think it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to mirror your affect. I'm going to mirror your energy level. I'm going to be a reflection of you. And what mirroring is as a hostage negotiator, as a business negotiator is not that at all. It starts with just simply repeating the last one to three words of what someone has just said. Now that sounds ridiculously stupid and mechanical and ineffective and inauthentic. And it is none of those things. And it is enormously effective. It's very easy to do. And the other side always likes it. And it connects their thoughts and it keeps them going. And I've seen it used effectively in hostage negotiations you know, I haven't talked about this example for a long time, but I remember a long time ago when Howard Stern was still on, on uh, public radio. And I think Howard Stern is one of the great communicators and one of the great negotiators because he gets people to talk and he always has. And so they've got a listener on, on the phone and it's one of those guys, the guys kind of, uh, you know, they, they used to like to put listeners on the phone and then just ignore them. But this person kept mirroring everything that Howard Stern was saying and the great communicator couldn't pull himself away from this person. And finally Howard Stern says, stop repeating everything I say. 
and the person said, everything I say? He said, yeah, you repeat everything I say. It's driving me crazy. And the person said, driving you crazy? He said, yeah, you know, you drive me crazy. You repeat everything I say. You got to stop doing it. And, and by simply mirroring him, he couldn't let go. He, and every time he answered, he'd say more and he'd expand and he'd go on and on and on. And I thought, if you could do this to a guy who's used to turning the tables on others and makes a living doing that, you can do it to anybody. And it, it, it's, it's ridiculous how effective it is. Right. So you just repeat the last few words they say. And they, the, the goal of that is just to keep them talking to you and revealing more information. It, it's to keep them talking in many places. In many cases, it actually replaces what do you mean by that? And, you know, like I'm a, I'm a very assertive guy. So if you ask me what I mean by that, I'm going to repeat exactly the same thing that I just said, only louder, kind of like an American overseas, you know, say it again, only louder and they'll understand and I was, and I'm working uh, with my director of op operations once, and I kept asking him uh, if he prepared the notebooks for this training. And he and he said to me, "What do you mean by notebooks?" Because he knew the way I was asking, what I had in my head was different than what he had in his head. And he just asked me a legitimate question: "What do you mean by that?" And every time he said, "What do you mean by notebooks?" I'd go, "Notebooks, notebooks." And finally, he just he just mirrored to me, "Notebooks," and I said, "Yeah, three ring binders." And that, that caused me to reword what I was saying and connect the thoughts in my head. And instead of repeating the exact same, three, same thing, I expanded on it and illustrated it in other words. And that's what happens when you mirror someone. The last one to three words, or if, you're, if you want to be, when you really get good at it, you'll pick out one to three words in the middle of what they've said. And you'll pick, but it's just one to three words word for word and the other person will expand and give you more information on that concept every time okay that's a great great tactic there well, let's let's go back to this this hostage of yes thing uh, we talked about you know instead of trying to get to yes our first goal should be to get to that's right and we can do that by um you know through these you know active listening tactical empathy but you know, earlier you said um, that people are hostages. Yes, when they actually should also be going. I mean, they should be going for no. Um, I when I was in law school, we were talking about this earlier. I, when I was in law school, I took a negotiation class, and the textbook we used was "Getting to Yes." And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this and they've done research negotiation or taking a class on negotiation, they probably read this book. Um, but you argue that the goal shouldn't be getting to yes; it should be getting to no. Why is no so powerful in propelling a negotiation forward? All right. And, and I'll make a side comment on getting to yes, because I own getting to yes. And almost everybody does. But I don't know anybody that sat down and has ever said, I read it cover to cover. Because <laughs> it's like reading the dictionary. It's completely accurate. It's brilliant intellectually. But it's, it's a tough read. I think you should have it in your library. It's a great resource, but it's a tough read. And so there's something crazy when you get somebody to say no. I mean, first of all, the whole idea behind the book by Jim Camp, Start With No, is as soon as you let somebody feel free that it's okay to say no, they feel their autonomy is respected, they're less defensive, and they're collaborating with you. Just by making them feel it's okay to say no. 
So we started to experiment with what happens if you, when you actually get somebody to say no. And you'd be stunned at what people are willing to say no to because it's, it's protection. And it started with Marty Eversizer, who was a negotiator in Pittsburgh. Her boss was getting ready to fire from the negotiation team. And she, she was a phenomenal representative of the FBI Pittsburgh as a negotiator. And she knew that if, if she was removed, it would be embarrassing for the office. And this guy didn't care. And she says, she says to him, do you want the FBI to be embarrassed? And the answer is no. And it's a manipulative question. But since the answer was no, it was okay to say no. Because when you say no, you protect yourself. You don't let yourself in for anything. There's a psychological process that happens with people when they say no. When my son was 17, he would say, Dad, can I? And I would say no before he was finished. And as, as soon as I said no, then I would say, all right, so what was it that you wanted to talk to me about? Because I'd already said no. Now I was willing to listen. And so we use this. And I was actually uh, uh, on a phone with a, uh, consulting with a client just a little while ago. And I said, you know, this guy is making it so hard on you. Ask him if he wants you to not be able to pay your bills. Because if you can't pay your bills, you can't pay him. The answer to that is no. People will say no to that because they haven't let themselves in for anything. I've had, I was consulting with a client who was working on, um, they were creating a job for him in Beverly Hills and the job description was off. And I said, sit down and ask them if they want you to fail. Do you want the person in this job to fail? Because he needed them to see what they had constructed was out of place, but they were in love with the description they came up with. And he needed to shock them in a way that would make them feel protected. And that's what, when you trigger somebody into saying no, I mean, it, it, it shocks them and they feel protected at the same time and they're moved to action. There was a student in my class who was working on a Republican fundraising committee where they, they call people at night and they ask them the three standard yes questions and then they ask for a donation. You know, the first yes question was, would you like to take the White House back in, uh, would you like to see the Republicans take the White House back in November? And they just flipped it to, have you given up on taking the White House back in November? And they took each one of those questions that used to be a yes and flipped them to no's and that night, they got a 23% higher donation rate on the no questions. No spurs people forward in a way where they feel tremendously protected at the same time. It's ridiculous how effective it is. Yeah, I can, from my own experience, so I get a lot of business pitches, right? Um, they want to, people want to write for me, advertising deals. And the ones that I'm more likely to say yes to are, are when they end with, you know, hey, I understand if you can't do this or don't want to do this. And like, I'm like, wow, that I, get, I, I feel free. There's like some protection. I'm more willing to like listen to them. It's kind of silly. I've even implemented this on my emails when I make a pitch to someone. I just said, here's my pitch. Understand if you have to say no, no hard feelings. Don't worry about it. And that's it. And I usually get a better response when I leave that gateway open, uh, surprisingly, which is inter- right. interesting because the counterintuitive, because you're always told like, don't leave a gateway. Like just, you got to funnel into the way you want, but that actually just puts people off. Right, right. That once you respect somebody's autonomy, it, it changes the dynamic instantly, doesn't it? All right. Let me um, let me tell you my Jack Welch. Can I tell you my Jack Welch? Yeah, story? I'd love to hear the Jack Welch story. All right. So uh, uh, 
about a year ago, Jack and Susie Welch are out, are out um, you know, doing book signings on the Real Life NBA. And I'm at a book signing. And a book signing for any celebrity, and Jack Welch by, is absolutely a celebrity. He's a rock star of American CEOs. And so book signings are dangerous places for celebrities. People walk up. They come within arm's length. You don't know what this person who's trying to get his book signed is going to do. You know, you know, Jane Fonda, she got spit in her face at, at, a, at a book signing. So they don't know. I come up to Jack Welch. I'm within arm's length. They don't know. I, I'm going to kiss Jack Welch on the lips. They don't know what I'm going to do to this guy, right? <laughs> so they're very defensive. They couldn't be more defensive. And they're trying to let you only be there for long enough for Jack to sign your book smile for a photo and move on. And I'm sure in these instances that people are constantly, this is my opportunity to pitch Jack Welch, ask him to do something, ask him to do something where the answer is yes. Right? So I want Jack Welch to come speak. See if he's even willing to speak to the course I teach at USC. So I get in front of him and I say, Mr. Welch, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come to speak at the class I teach at USC? Now I'm driving for a no. And he looks up and to the left and he gets this extremely intense look on his face. I mean, he actually, he, to me, I don't know him. You know, I'm told that he, you know, he has this incredible, when he's focused and he has this almost frightening gaze, but he almost looks furious to me and he doesn't, and he freezes. He doesn't move for what to me seems like an eternity. And my first thought is I just killed Jack Welch. He just had a stroke. and He's going <laughs> to die right in front of me. He's getting ready to fall over. And I'm going to go to jail for giving him a stroke. But th then his face softens a little bit. He looks back at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is how to get a hold of her. I will let her know you're going to be in touch with her and we'll see if the calendars can sync up. All because I triggered her now. Trigger now. Go for now. All right. Uh, that's, that's a great tactic to use in negotiation or just even just daily life um, to help persuade people. Um, so let's talk about this. We talked about this before the show, before we got on uh, recording uh, about calibrated questions. This is a, I've never heard of this technique, but I've been implementing it and I've seen it work. Um, so what are calibrated questions and how do they help draw you closer to negotiating successfully? Well, we, we use the term, I use the term calibrated because every question you ask is going to trigger an emotional response on the other side, every single question. So if it's going to trigger a response, are they predictable? And can we then calibrate the emotional response that we want? And that's why the questions are calibrated. It's an intended impact. And on our level one, you know, our, our basics are the how and what questions because they create a feeling of empowerment in the other side while you have limited their responses and they have no idea that you've limited how they could respond because you've created this empowerment and how is beautiful for what we call this uh, process of forced empathy. You are forcing the other side to take a look at you. And so how and what questions are critical in that? You know, they say that most people say the opening questions are the interrogatives, which are, the reporter's questions, who, what, when, why, how, and where. And we eliminate almost all of those, especially eliminating why, and focus on how and what. And when you say to someone, you know, the, the great how question that substitutes for no is, how am I supposed to do that? And 
people, you, before people learn to use that question, they think, oh my God, I've let myself open. I'm so vulnerable at this point in time. And you're not. Uh, but you have to try it to find out. It forces the other side to take a look at you. And the client that I was talking to on the phone earlier, he's in a, a, in a, in a business deal where he signed a personal guarantee for a significant amount of money. And until he can pay that personal guarantee, the interest rate, the compounds on it is very high. And the guy's trying to get him to, to sign the documents again or be sued. And he doesn't pay. He says, how am I supposed to do that? And it stopped the other guy in his tracks. The other guy has all the advantages in the world, and it stopped him in his tracks. And it, and if they're going to propose, if there's any softness in in their position, which is the point of negotiation. You know, how do I push the other side to get all the value out of this, to get every option, without making them so angry that they storm out and they threaten to sue me? And and the how question is calibrated to push the other side to the maximum. And the worst thing they'll ever say is because you have to. And somebody saying because you have to, that means you're still in the conversation. They haven't slammed their hands down on the table and walked out. They haven't threatened to sue you. They want you to comply and they're, and they're being still civil in, in, in their reaction to you. And how the how question and versions of it are calibrated to create that response. Right. Yeah, it's, it's extremely powerful. And the other thing too, like you mentioned earlier, there's no deal unless there's a how, right? So that how question exactly helps you get closer to a deal. Like someone could say yes, but if they don't have a how that's going to happen, then you don't have a deal. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that, that's actually the way to tell the liar from the guy who just hasn't thought things through. Either person that you're dealing with, you got the same problem. They can't answer how. And so you use how to deal with a liar. And then either the liar is going to stop lying or he's going to go away. And you use the how question with the person who hasn't thought things through. And they think yes is enough because you got the exact same problem. Without how, you got no deal. Right. I mean, you can, I mean, this is, it's not just a negotiation, like, you know, business negotiations, but just sort of negotiations of life. If you have your boss that comes to you and says, I need this project done by tomorrow and you've got a full plate. I mean, you could just ask them, how am I supposed to do this? And that will force them to empathize with you. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and it's a deferential question because we used it in kidnapping and we found that there was great, there's, you know, we had to be deferential in, in kidnappings because they're going to kill the victim. You know, we can't be assertive. We can't be demanding. We have to be deferential. We found it was great power and deference. And that's why you could use it with your boss. Because you, you don't say it to your boss like you think he's an idiot. You don't, you don't say, how am I supposed to do that? You dope, you know, is what your tone of voice says. You know, you look at the boss and you say, how am I supposed to do that? In a deferential tone. And your boss, boss will feel wonderful because you're, feel, you're being deferential and you're asking them for help which makes him feel large and in charge, which is what boss is like. Right. That's awesome. Well, your, your company now, Chris, is called Black Swan. Um, and you argue in the book, within negotiation, you have to be on the lookout for black swans. Um, what is a black swan in the context of negotiation? Right, right, right. And, and if I may, the company is the Black Swan Group. 
and you know, um, and that's the full name of the company. And uh, you know, Black Swan, it, it you have to think two steps to see them, but they're always there. And a Black Swan is a piece of information that neither side could predict that if it gets out in the open, it's going to change everything. And the reason they're always there is because every negotiation you're in you will have information that you are holding back from the other side. You know you've got cards you're hiding that they don't know about. Every negotiation. Which means that's also true for the other side. So now the question is, where do these cards overlap? And what happens on the overlap of the hidden information? That's where the unknowns are. And if we can dig that out through good calibrated questions through triggering those through triggering that's rights. Suddenly crazy stuff happens that either I triggered a black swan in a negotiation not long ago where I questioned whether or not the deal on the table was a good deal. And when I triggered the black swan, I knew I had a good deal and you, and so it will simply reaffirm that you negotiated a good deal or it may show you a new idea of something you never thought of because neither side thought it was valuable. And I got another negotiation where we start brainstorming non-monetary terms and they threw out the possibility of introductions to business people that would be enormously valuable for me. And I didn't even know they knew these people. But because we brainstormed, we started showing each other information that the other, either one of us had any reason to know the other side held. And those are always worth taking the time to try to find. They're always worth the extra 15 minutes to come up with something that take, could take the deal in a whole new trajectory. Right. I guess the other challenge of that too is just being open, like being open to that, right? Being aware that there could be something out there that you don't like those unknown unknowns, right? Is What's his Rumsfeld right. said? Be aware that they're there and be ready to find spot them when you do see them. 